Uh, I have uh, this show that I found when we first moved here. I had heard about it, but I hadn't really seen it. And we moved in, we were at my dad's house, and he has a satellite dish, so I'm flipping through, and I started getting hooked on it, because every Friday and Saturday night, it's on. It's called Live PD, right? Live PD, if you don't know what that is, they basically um, have these camera crews that follow around police officers at different uh, departments around the country, and then they have this, like, command center where they... Uh, they watch what's going on with the different officers they, with all their screens, and when something interesting starts to happen, they'll cut away to that. It's kind of like the NFL red zone, but for police. And so it's cool. And so they're flipping around, and it's like, you know, this traffic stop's getting kind of boring, but over here we have a high-speed chase. Let's tune in over there. So we're watching this kind of thing, and, and I just get wrapped up, and you never know what you're going to see. I've seen high-speed chases, and you're like, whoa, this is exciting, and you're sitting on the edge of your seat, and you're going, what's going to happen? I've seen these standoffs where they think the guy in the back's got like a grenade or a gun, and they're afraid they're going to get shot, so they're moving in real careful, and they're being real cautious, and, and you're just like, I don't know if I can handle what I'm about to see right now. But then there's the real fun episodes, especially if they're in Pasco County, Florida, or Warwick, Rhode Island. Those are like the two, like, I just go, wow, man, that's an interesting place right there. And you regularly cut away, and there's almost always some sort of dispute that people get called out to. And they're like, we're cutting away to a fight in progress, which doesn't mean at all you're going to see a fight. What it means is you're going to see an officer with people separated, and the officer's going to walk over here and start to talk to these folks, right? And he's going to ask questions. What was going on? And they start to tell this big, long, elaborate story that usually has, I was minding my own business And then all of a sudden, they did this, 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 and this, and provoked this thing. Okay, so we've heard this side. They ask a few questions, they get the details, and then they go back over here to these people. And they say, okay, now tell us your version of the story. And what's funny is it's oftentimes very similar to the other one. We were minding our own business, and here's what we were doing, and then they started doing blah, 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 blah. And we go back over here, we talk to some other people who may have seen something or saw something, and they start to piece together. And I'm always beyond amazed at the patience that these officers demonstrate when all this stuff is going on and the excuses and the details and all these things they're getting and people are adamant that they didn't do anything wrong and you can tell and the officer can tell that that's a bunch of baloney and they're sitting there trying to sort this thing out play and you know anybody who has multiple kids in a house siblings you've played this game before too it's like i'm gonna go over here and listen to your side of the story and i'm gonna go over here and listen to your side of the story it doesn't really matter if it's live pd on tv or if it is kids in the house who gotten into an argument or in a fight the the situation remains the same you got to sort through the consistencies in the story because every time they give a little information you come back over here and present it to this side and they go, well, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden the story changes slightly. It's kind of like we backpedal just a little bit on that one detail because I was hoping that wouldn't come out in the storytelling process, you know. And no matter what, though, there's always a reason or an excuse why I was an innocent bystander and this was somebody else's fault. And the level of patience that is demonstrated in these circumstances, I'm going, I, number one, I'd probably just be laughing at people, but that'd be bad. So... In the midst of all this, I love watching these shows, I love watching this stuff work out, but we talk about it there, and it happens all the time, and we mentioned last week that it happened a little bit in Genesis, the scripture that we were looking at, and I told you last week that as we read through that passage where God comes back into the garden, it's the same kind of thing. God, this good and gracious Father, comes back into a situation, and all of a sudden the kids are hiding, right? Adam and Eve are hiding in the bushes, afraid that God's going to find out and see them, because they now know they're naked. And he goes, 
who told you you're naked? Did you eat from that tree that I told you not to eat? And they come on to, he comes into the scene and he starts to try to sort it out. And he starts to ask what happened. What took place? And of course, Adam over here is going, you know, yeah, I mean, that wife that you gave me, that woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and so I, I ate it. It was all her. And then he goes to Eve and he says, all right, Eve, what happened? Did you do this thing? She goes, well, it was that, it was that serpent. He tempted me and, and he tricked me into eating the fruit. And they all start to point the fingers and it's this way that we become the innocent bystander who didn't really have anything to do with this. It was somebody else's fault as to why I did that. It was somebody else's fault as to why that took place. And one more moment, one more little symptom starts to creep in, and we're going to talk about it in a little more depth this morning, the sickness of evil entering into the world. And we've been talking through this series. We talked about this idea of the differences between good and evil and how that's painted in this picture where God creates all that is good and evil enters into the world and breaks this system. And then now that evil has started to take hold of our hearts, what are the symptoms that are showing? And last week we talked about that inability to trust, how we cover up in shame and hide Because if I'm untrustworthy, I assume you're untrustworthy. And therefore, we're going to conceal ourselves and keep that that distance that breaks relationship. Because I'm not sure I trust you. And so we're going to dive in a little more in depth to Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 4. And you want to look there. We're going to head that direction. But before we go too far into God's word, let's have a word of prayer. Father, I love you so much. And I am thankful your word and I am thankful for the ways that you help us to grow and the ways that you help us to understand. Father, this morning I know that we're going to talk about stuff that I just still feel is a struggle for me at times and I feel is a struggle for so many in our world and we live in this broken place where so many of us are wrapped up in our perceptions and concerns about how other people see us and perceive us. And so, Father, I pray you just soften our hearts, and instead of allowing the enemy to convince us that we need to build up walls and protect ourselves, Father, I just pray that you would tear down the walls and allow us to lay ourselves out vulnerably before you this morning, that you would be allowed to speak into our hearts and to mold us and to shape us. And so, Father, I just give this time to you. I pray that, again, not my words be shared, but yours, that you would make an impact in our time together this morning. I love you. It's the precious name of Jesus. I pray all these things. Amen. So again, if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 3, this series, this sickness that we're working through, we're going to be talking through chapters 1 through 11. So I know being the third weekend and we're working our way up to Easter, you all might be saying, you're going to have to hurry up if we're going to get through 11. I promise it'll pick up some speed. We'll start moving a little more quickly through some parts as time goes on here. But there's a little bit of this part that we need to lean into a little bit in chapter 3 that we kind of read over last week, but we didn't talk about. And, and remember, again, God has created everything to be good. He's given man dominion over everything he's created. He's put them in charge. He said to subdue all of this that's created. Everything that I have given you is for you. All these plants are for you to eat except for this one tree. There's one simple rule. Don't eat from the tree. And of course, last week we saw that Adam and Eve did eat from the tree and they covered themselves in shame and they hid themselves from even their own spouse, someone that should be trustworthy. They hid themselves from one another. They hid themselves in shame and in fear of, can I trust you? Can I be open? Can I be honest? Can I be vulnerable with you? And so here we go in chapter 3, verse 8. We're going to pick this story back up and reread this section here just a little bit. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves 
from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, uh, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. Now, we'll stop right there for just a second. We've talked about this, we've said it a couple times, we've read it a couple times now, but again, just like last week, we need to really think about the scenario and what's happening and who's in this scene and what's going on in this moment. Again, God is walking through the garden. They know that God created all of these things, right? They know that God knows them. And here, they're hiding from God, they're worried, they're concerned, they're fearful of what's going to happen. They're hiding from him. They're not sure they can trust him because of what they've done, the way they've failed. And all of a sudden, he says, what have you done? What happened? And in an effort to try to say, I'm not sure I can trust other people, right? I've failed. I know that they failed me. I'm not sure I can trust them. We've, we talked about that distance and that separation that's going on next week, or the, what we talked about last week. This week, we kind of realized that the next step of what they're doing is trying to regain a little bit of their footing. They've lost their footing, right? They've fallen back. They've messed up. They have failed God, and here he is to confront them. And so what is it they're trying to accomplish by saying, oh, it was her, she, she gave it to me, and she made me eat it. And she's going, no, it was him, he deceived me, and he made me eat it. We're trying to somehow save and salvage some sense of the image or the way God perceives us and sees us. In that moment, they're trying to salvage an image of themselves that still has value. I don't, no one wants to be seen as a failure, right? It, it's really tough for us when we make mistakes to let everybody in and see those. It's really tough to admit and be honest about our own failures because we don't want other people to think less of us. For example, most people would say, oh man, you're a pastor to church, better not let people see you do that. So it would be really stupid of me to get up here and tell you about how I got pulled over this week, right? I did, sorry. <laughs> I got pulled over. <laughs> What was great is it was right in front of Marilyn's house. She was still not home yet. She was still at the nursing home. But she was kind of getting rehab. But somebody laughed and said, oh, hope Marilyn wasn't watching. I'm like, oh, she was. I'm going to talk about it on Sunday. It'll be okay. But here's the thing. I, I, and this is really bad. I'm going to tell myself for just a second here. I pull it out of my house. I'm heading somewhere I haven't been before. So I want to make sure I know how I'm getting there. So I'm sitting in my driveway, typing in the address into my phone to make sure I have my directions, right? And because I'm getting ready, I don't think about it, and I pull out, and I haven't put my seatbelt on. Now, this is the funny part. I pull out of my neighborhood, I go down to the end of end right, which is right there in front of my neighborhood, and I start to turn, or I, I come to the look, and I see coming down the road, down Gibson, I see two police officers coming this way, and I, all of a sudden it hits me, I'm not wearing my seatbelt. Oh, no, this is bad. So here he is, he's going to turn in right next to me, and I'm going to go right next to him, so we're going to be as close as we could possibly get, right? And I'm not wearing my seatbelt, and I'm kind of like, no eye contact, shame kind of moment. And feeling bad that I haven't put it on, and I start to pull out, and of course I immediately snap it on. And sure enough, I see him start to pull around, and he starts to come back after me. And I, of course, I'm, I pull into that little church there across from Maryland's house over on, you know, the little uh, Church of Christ there. And I'm sitting in the parking lot, and he comes up, and he goes, so do you know, he goes, give me your license registration. Yes, sir. Do you know why I pulled you over today? 
yeah, yeah, no, I, got, I just got other things in my head and I forgot to put it on. I'm sorry I wasn't wearing my seatbelt. He kind of looks at me funny. I'm like, uh-oh, wrong answer. <laughs> wrong answer. I, he didn't notice the seatbelt. He drove right past me and didn't notice the seatbelt because I think what happened, uh, this is just my guess, is I saw them coming, realized I wasn't wearing my seatbelt, and was so flustered in the moment about how I'm putting my seatbelt on, I never actually fully came to a stop at that stop sign and just kind of cruised around that corner. So I was being stopped or because I didn't stop. <laughs> and so we had kind of a, I had a little laugh. I don't know. He didn't really laugh very much, but he was really nice. And he fortunately just gave me a written warning. But all that being said, that's not the kind of story you want to tell people, right? You're supposed to behave and obey the law, young man. Now, if I'd gone out and robbed a, a, a store or something, you know, maybe I probably wouldn't have told that story. But <laughs> right, we, we try not to tell things that make us look worse. We try not to make people think less of us. We try not to give them any reason to think that we are lesser than we are. We like to stay in this position of lifted up. We like to maintain this identity of people seeing us and recognizing something of value. And anything that diminishes that value, anything that makes them think less of us, I'd rather not talk about that, right? So in this moment, they feel like they've messed up. But they want to try to hold on to and preserve as much as they can to hold on to as much of an image of themselves as is favorable. And therefore, they start to point the finger and cast off the blame. Now, here's what's interesting. We're going to continue to move on from here. We're going to get away from Adam and Eve for a second. Because you think about it, kids, some of you had kids in the house, you know that they learn from us, both the good and the bad, right? There's those stories that people hear, they understand that their road rage is getting out of control when their kids start yelling mean things at other drivers from the back seat. My son already at three years old is starting to recognize, dad, why are they not going? The light's green. I'm going, yep, it is, son. I'm thinking about it. Trust me. It's like, you know that you probably have said too much whenever they start to repeat the things that you're saying both good and bad, but you think about it, Adam and Eve have this sin that's entered their life. They have this insecurity, this brokenness, because that's really that, that word, insecurity, is really where we're going to land and talk about this morning. And this insecurity is this concept. If I said, uh, if I'm building a tower, I, f- I feel a little insecure up here, right? I don't feel secure. It's the lack of security. If I'm standing on a little tower, a little platform that's real wobbly, I just kind of stack some books up and everything feels real shaky. Or if you ever tried to stand on a, like an office chair, it's a really terrible idea with wheels and stuff. It's bad. You just don't really feel real secure on it, right? It's the same concept. We're building up this image of ourselves or who we want other people to perceive us as, and we're always concerned that it's a wobbly structure, That at any moment it might fall apart and they might actually see us for who we are. If you are living in an insecure way where you feel the guilt and the shame of what you've done and you're worried about your guilt and your shame and and who you are being found out, it only makes sense that it's going to be passed along to your kids, that they might pick up on some of that insecurity and start to live in the same way. And so if you keep moving on from here, this next section, God hands out the consequences. He tells the serpent what's going to happen. And there's this really interesting moment where God references that your offspring and her offspring are going to be at odds throughout history. But eventually her offspring, he's going to crush your head and you're going to bruise his heel. And there's this prophecy that's a little nestled in here. This the first reference of something greater that's going to come where God is going to solve this problem of sin. It's right here 
in chapter 3 in the middle of these consequences. And God tells Adam, hey, you know, you're, you're still going to be working the soil, but it's gonna, you're going to grow nothing but thorns, and it's going to get really hard to produce food, and all of these things are going to become more challenging. For Eve, you're going to have pain in childbirth, and it's going to be painful. But all of this said, he sends them out of the garden. He's not going to let them stay there anymore, but he gives them clothes. The first animals that we know of are killed for the sake of providing them skin. Sacrifice was made on their behalf to provide for them. And they're sent with these clothes made of skin out of the garden. And God says, you're not going to be allowed to stay here anymore. He puts an angel there with this flaming sword to cut them off from the tree of life to make sure they don't have access to this tree. Whatever it is, the significance of it, it's a whole other conversation for another day. But here they are starting their life away from the garden, away from the perfection of everything God designed. And they have kids. Starting in chapter 4, it says this, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground. And Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, this is one of those stories that I remember from the earliest days of Sunday school, people telling me this story. And I still remember the way it was told. It was kind of this, Cain really didn't give a very good offering, and Abel gave the best of his offering, and so God was upset with Cain because Cain didn't give his best, and so therefore God was angry at Cain, and then Cain was mad that God was angry at him, and so he got jealous and frustrated and killed his brother. And this is kind of the way the story is presented. But I want us to read carefully what happens here in this picture of who God is, because it also tells us a lot about Cain's heart. It says that Abel, or sorry, in the course of time, Cain, starting in verse 3, brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground. It doesn't say much more about it. It was just he brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, right? So he brought some of what he had. He brought an offering to the Lord, giving of some of the things that he had produced. However, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. In this culture, firstborn is a big deal. Uh, I say in this culture, we're beginning a culture, but here we go. This, it's a big deal to have these firstborn, the first products of their labor, the fat portions, this healthier version of the livestock. And he gives it, and it says here in, in this translation, and there's other ones that translate it a little differently, but it's basically God had regard for Abel's, but had no regard for Cain. Now, that doesn't mean that God was angry and God was ready to throw lightning down on Cain and destroy him, because in the midst of this, Abel was looked on with favor. Good job. I'm really pleased and thankful for your gift. He had regard. He paid attention to. He, in some way, made it known that Abel's offering was pleasing to him. But he did not make it known that Cain's offering was pleasing to him. He didn't express his displeasure from what we understand. He just didn't express anything for Cain's offering. Now, you can imagine an older brother who brought something. And then the younger brother who brought something, and the younger brother receiving all the praise for what he brought. You've been, maybe you haven't been there, but you can only imagine what's going on in his head right now, right? The anger and the frustration. That little punk, that little guy, like we know siblings, no matter how much he loved or thought highly of his brother, it didn't matter. That little guy, you like him 
I know all the things he's done that are wrong. I know all the things he's done that aren't good. And we start to think about all of the many ways in which his value isn't as good as my value. And Cain is doing the same sort of thing. He's trying to hold on to this image he has of himself and cast down the image of his brother so that his brother is viewed as less than, right? In his own mind. He may not be expressing it to other people, but in his own mind, he's tearing down the concept and idea of his brother and who his brother is, and he's becoming angry that God didn't recognize his gift. And I love this moment where God comes and speaks to him. In fact, I use it in my house often when I'm talking to my kids because kids have a tough time when they're wrestling with their emotions. They're trying to figure out how they're feeling. Nora especially, she'll say, I'm so frustrated. And she just gets so, like, she'll say, I'm frustrated. And she just starts to lose control of her emotions, and we'll sit down and we're like, we've talked about this story because God does this beautiful thing right here where he says, in verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It desire, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. He's in essence saying, hey, buddy, it's a pep talk. You have the ability to do right. I know you do. You, you have all the opportunity to do the right thing. And you can give me a better offering. You can understand and learn from this moment and give me something good. But right now, your emotions and your feelings and how you're experiencing this feeling about your brother is sin crouching at your door waiting to consume you and take control of you, and it wants to devour and destroy you. But you have the ability to rule over it. You have the ability not to care about this balancing act that you're trying to do in your own head, this, this justification of how you're feeling and what's going on in this moment. Because I can only imagine what Cain's doing. Because I've been there. I've seen other people be there. We're trying to think of all the reasons he didn't deserve it, and I do. When in reality, Cain knows that his gift wasn't as generous and selfless and giving as Abel's. He knows he didn't give the best of his ground, of what was produced in the ground, of his fruits and his vegetables. He didn't give the best of everything he had. He gave some of it. And he knows that his brother gave some really great gifts. And so ultimately, deep down in his heart, he knows. He knows his own brokenness. He knows his own faults. He knows his own failures. But he doesn't want that to be the image that other people see. He doesn't want that to be how he's known. He's angry and frustrated because he knows he had the ability to do what was right. And yet at the same time, he's just angry and frustrated and doesn't know how to handle his feelings at the fact that his brother, his little brother, this little guy, did it the right way. And all of a sudden, we see this picture being painted of another way evil and sin just creep in a little more into our lives. Because people will try to regain what we've lost. Our own goodness our own innocence, our own image that is favorable and pleasing to other people. We want to be seen with favor. We want to gain the acceptance of other people. We've lost that favor with God, and we're trying to hold on to as much of this concept of us being a good person as we can muster. And so we hear people say, like we mentioned a couple weeks ago, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. Ultimately, deep down, we know the brokenness. We know our faults and failures. Ultimately, if we really look, we can see the ways that we're weak. But ultimately, the picture we want to paint is of goodness. I'm a pretty good person. I do this the right way. I do that the right way. 
But in reality, we're still facing so many different struggles. There's a lot of different ways that this manifests itself in our culture. For example, just one of the little simple introductory ways. We want to put forth our best, fo- our best effort. Uh, you know, like we have high school, middle school and high school coming to our house tonight, right? I have three kids that live in my house that aren't really good at cleaning them up, up after themselves. And I, because I spend a lot of my time trying to help them manage their stuff and their lives and their things, there are also times where I have a tough time keeping up with all the things that we need to do ourselves. And so you can imagine that over the course of a busy week where we're not in the house a lot, things get a little disheveled, right? And so, of course, you're going to have people over to the house, and you want to put your best foot forward. My house doesn't look like this all the time, but I want to make sure that my house looks good when you come over. Because I don't want you to think less of me that I'm some sort of dirty person or something, right? And therefore, I'll work really, really hard to make sure my house looks like those ones on HGTV. I'll paint it all up really nice. I'll, I'll hang really cutesy decorations on the wall. I'll be all over Pinterest trying to come up with a cool idea to make it look like everybody else's should because I've got to look like the Gaines's house for it to be acceptable by other people, right? I always tell new, like, people who are getting ready to get married, I'm like, hey, by the way, you're poor. And maybe, like a lot of times they're coming out of college whenever I've done these things. Like, you don't have money. You're in really big debt to your school. You probably shouldn't try to accomplish everything you've seen on HGTV in the first go-around. It's okay to live in a little apartment and not have many things on the wall. It's okay, right? Because we think we have to keep up with everybody else by maintaining this home that says certain things about us. Or even if we don't ever have anybody else over into our house, it just makes us feel good that our house kind of looks like theirs because it makes us feel like we're keeping up with somebody else in our status And our image is elevated to a certain level. Jobs. We work jobs. We stay really busy trying to make a lot of money. And some of us gauge our our wealth or our value off the paycheck that we make or off the promotions that we've gotten or how necessary we are in the workplace. And we're really proud of our accomplishments. And the sad thing is, is in the midst of this, we can work really hard to keep all these things. It doesn't mean they're bad. It isn't bad to maintain a good house. It isn't bad to work hard at your job. What is bad is when our value is found in how nice our home looks or our value is found in how well we've succeeded in our job. And we are working so hard to achieve these things that we neglect the most important things. Sometimes our family. Oftentimes our relationship with God and the time we commit and devote to his cause and his gospel. The things that are going on around us because we're worried about what other people will think. We have to maintain certain levels. You look in the workplace, sometimes I see people in positions where they see themselves that they need to be needed, right? And because I need to be needed in this, this venue, I don't want other people to know that I may not have an answer or a solution to this problem that's come up in the workplace. Yeah, one of my team members had a pretty good idea, but I'm the boss, and if I let them have a good idea, man, people are going to think that they might be more valuable than me. And so I've seen bosses squelch good ideas because they have to be the smartest person in the room with all the answers. And it's one more way that insecurity seeps in and keeps us from overall investing in the health and well-being of something bigger than ourselves because we're trying to protect our own image. Some of us feel this weakness in this spot where we have to be needed by in other ways. Maybe it's taking care of kids and, oh, I've seen... I've seen parents that helicopter over their kids and, oh, they need me to to clean their room. They need me to wash their hands. They need me to do this. They need me for this and that and the other. And I'm involved in everything they do to the point where the kid's going, sweet, I got it made. I don't need to learn any of this stuff because you'll just do it for me. It's great. Just keep going. And all the while, we're causing detriment and harm to somebody else because 
and ultimately to a bigger picture down the road because I need to be needed. I need to have value. If they don't need me, what's my identity? Who am I? What's my value in this world and in this place? Maybe even sometimes it's here within these walls or other places that we serve or invest. I need to be needed. I need to be valued. And so the way I serve, you know, I do this. I do this all the time, and I'm the one who does it. And no one could probably do it just like me. It kind of goes back to that boss mentality in the office place, right? And therefore, we never train anybody else up to go with us to learn how to do the things we do or to go meet the people we meet. We want to be needed, and therefore, we never raise up anybody else to take hold of those reins and to do those things as well as we do. Or oftentimes it's that need to be right. The need to have all the answers, just like we talked about with the boss, needing to know all the right things, but our knowledge and our perception, we live in a world where everybody has to be right. Arguments are happening all over the place. People are getting offended left and right because you don't see things the same way I do. Right? And therefore we look at the situation and we say, nope, I need to be right because if I'm wrong, man, what kind of value does my life have if I'm wrong on this subject? And we start to feel this insecurity. If I'm wrong about this, I could be wrong about that and about that and about that. And so we don't really ever admit that we're wrong. We just dig in that much deeper and entrench ourselves in, in, no, I'm not willing to hear other perspectives. I'm not willing to hear other sides of the story. I'm just going to say that I'm right no matter what. And more and more people dig into these entrenched sidelines of saying, no, I need to be right. And that doesn't just happen out in the world and on social media and in politics it happens sometimes even in our own walls when I need to be right about what a service has and doesn't have I need to be right about what scripture says here versus that church down the street who says that it says something different I need to be right because if I'm wrong man what's that do to the rest of me and all the while this whole list I could go on and on and on and come up with other examples of ways that we hold on to our images our understanding of who we are we are creating an image of ourselves that we want lifted up and we want held in a high esteem and a high position. And the problem is we've forgotten how the book started. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We were created in a perfect and beautiful image, the image and likeness of God. But that was broken when we chose sin, and evil has entrenched itself in us so deeply that now we say, no, you don't need that image. Remember, the temptation was, you don't need his understanding of good and evil. Take this fruit, and you can choose for yourself what is good and evil. You can understand and know good and evil on your own terms, and therefore, I can define what good is for me. I can define what my value for other people is. I can define what my worth in this world is going to be, and therefore we continue to build as much as we can of an image for ourselves. We cast off blame. We don't tell bad stories. We hide whenever other people might know something secretive about us that might cause them to think less about us because we're worried and scared of what we might lose. We might lose friendships. We might lose a job. We might lose so many different things, and therefore that whole image, that whole thing we're standing on, the whole way we build our life just feels real wobbly and insecure. And we do a lot of scary things in order to hold on to our image. But what's beautiful is, again, this whole series is working up to Easter. And we're going to talk about what Jesus does on Easter and what he does to eradicate evil and sin in our lives. But the reality is Jesus' message always kept saying, 
And if you look at all of Scripture, all of Scripture kept saying, in the Old Testament, it was idols, right? They would build up these Asherah poles and these idols to Baal. And even in Exodus, they made this golden calf. People were always creating idols and images that they could worship. And God told them in the Ten Commandments not to do that. Moses took it so seriously, he ground up the golden calf and fed it to them, right? Other times, they burned down and teared down these different altars and, and poles and different things that they worshipped. Ultimately, there's this image of all of these, or this picture of all these images being destroyed throughout the course of Scripture. And then Jesus says this, if you want to be my follower, pick up your cross and follow me. It's just not outside idols that we worship. It's not outside things that we see and commit idolatry. Sometimes it's our own image of self. The main thing that we have put first in our life is us, and we are the idol and the image that we sometimes worship and protect more than God himself and the image that we are created to live in. And God is calling us to tear down our idols and be open and vulnerable so that you're not scared to tell how you got pulled over this week. And that's a silly example, I get it. That's funnier than it is really that embarrassing. But if I were to get up here and tell you about the ways I struggle with different images of pornography on the internet when I was a kid, Growing up in high school, that's something people don't like to talk about. That makes us uncomfortable and nervous. But that sin, if I continue to hide from it, if I continue to keep it secret, if I continue to hold it in and present this other face, I just give it more and more power to rule my life. But when I lay it out in the open and let truth and light shine on it, it destroys its power and its hold. And I say, go, no, 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 no. My image, it's a broken mess. I am nothing without God. Sin and evil mess me up. It's broken relationships. It's messed everything up in my world. The only way I can be right is to surrender and die to myself so that I no longer live, but Christ, the image I was created to live in, lives in me. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The question is, do we let sin and evil continue to consume us in a way where we're trying to build up an image of self so that we have everybody else feeling good about who we are, or do we walk in the honest vulnerability of saying, no, 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 I'm a broken mess without Christ, and I can't make this world or any of this stuff happen on my own, and I'm going to stop pointing the finger, I'm going to own my shame and my blame. I'm going to stop trying to convince you that I'm something that I'm not, and I'm just going to tell you I'm a mess, and I will fail you, and I will let you down, and I'm going to live vulnerably and honestly, not covering up my shame and my nakedness, but living vulnerable and open. And so this morning, worship is going to come back up, and we're going to stand in just a minute, and we're going to have a time of prayer. And you'll notice, again, I put in the bulletin this week a, a, some, a, a kind of a, a few thoughts of prayer that you can be praying over this week to continue wrestling with this concept at home, but I just want you to simply ask yourself this question. God, I trust you and I love you and I want you to know that I'm seeking after you and I know I'm going to fail and I know I'm going to mess up and I'm still trying to point the finger and point the blame and cast off the blame and I'm still trying to make an image for myself of who I am and what I want other people to think about me. I need your help in identifying the ways that I'm still consumed by this evil in my life. And I need your help to see the ways I'm still trying to create an image and put up a front and put on a mask of something that I'm not. Because God is good at revealing. He is the light that reveals the darkness. 
And so this morning, he wants to continue to help us work through this evil that infects our hearts and our lives and our minds and makes us feel like we have to be something we were never intended to be. And so I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm just going to simply ask you to pray this morning. God, how is it that I still need to die to myself and surrender to you? If there's other things you need to pray for, there's something heavy going on in your life this week, and you just want people to pray over you, please come forward and we'll pray with you. If you've not known Jesus in this relationship and this gift that he can offer you of what it means to pick up your cross and follow him, you want to talk through that, we'd be more than happy to pray through that with you. I'll just say this, whatever it is you're dealing with this morning, I pray that you'd lay it at his feet and surrender it to him. Let's pray. Father, I love you so much. Father, we spend a lot of time investing in us. We spend a lot of time thinking about who we want to be and what we want to look like and what we, how we want other people to perceive us. And Father, we spend sometimes way too little time offering ourselves up kind of completely like Abel did in a way that you're happy and proud and, and, and have favor on that gift, Father. We far too often spend selfish time saving things for ourselves. And Father, this morning I know that one of the ways we need to step into a vulnerable life and, and to open up is to realize the insecurity that causes when we try to hold on and create a shaky image of who we are, hiding the rough, sensitive, vulnerable inside and putting up that shell that for everyone else to see. And so Father, I know that your goal in your heart was always for us to live in your image and in your likeness and not in our own that you never told us to pursue an image for ourselves. And so, Father, I pray you would help us to die this morning to ourselves and to chase after you with all of our hearts so that whenever people see us, they don't see Nick DeFore or anybody else, but they see Jesus Christ living and walking and working in this world, accomplishing the Great Commission and the work that you set us to to make disciples of all nations so that we might help more and more people come to know how you can set us free from the evil that torments our life. We love you so much. This is the name of Jesus. I pray all these things.